Human culture thrives when discussions about what is true, what is just, and what is beautiful is remembered as an ongoing, never-ending, never-complete conversation. To quote Milton by the known rules of ancient liberty, welcome to Risky Conversations. I am your co-host, Ember Sadat. Join me and my co-host, Ace Deliri, as we engage in this ancient tradition of discussions around interesting topics with utterly fascinating people. All right, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us uh, for this uh, one-off conversation that we're going to proceed with today. Uh, there's lots of stuff to talk about. Uh, what I wanted to do is just a, for a friendly reminder to our listeners. Uh, why don't you guys give us a little introduction each? Uh, we'll start with Mike, and then we'll go with Paul. Hi, Ace. It's uh, good to be back. I think I uh, expressed the, probably the surprise of the audience that you decided to have us back, um, especially Paul, to be honest. I mean, I can't believe that anyone's going to sit through the two hours. Is, is he on, by the way? <laughs> yeah, yes, he's he is. on. <laughs> no, I think everyone will be relieved to find that Paul's on here as well, so they don't have to sit through two and a half hours of me. Hopefully it won't be two and a half hours again for the audience. But uh, no, um, so I'm Mike Driver. The, uh, I, I really don't know what to define myself as. It's a very difficult thing to talk about yourself, isn't it? Um, mostly serial entrepreneur, um, sometime writer and podcaster of various things um that would be my introduction perfect thank perfect. you very thank much you. our guests loved our episode with you so don't worry it can go for as long as uh, you have the patience to go <laughs> and now on to mr paul paul please introduce yourself to our listeners who may not know who you are yeah so uh well first off thanks uh ace and amber for putting this together because i know this stuff is kind of tough to uh organize so uh first off and and thanks for Mr. Driver for uh, jumping on and, and kind of bouncing some ideas around. Um, first and foremost, uh, I was a trader for about 25 years. I've been in, unemployed for about the last five years, just watching the world go by. And that's pretty much a summary of kind of what I've done and where I've been. I mean, uh, I don't have much to add other than that. Perfect. Okay. Thank you very much for the introduction, gentlemen. So here's the first question. And the reason I brought you gentlemen on is because you guys actually have a very interesting way of looking at things. So there's sort of a theme of what I wanted to discuss about today. And what's cool about the theme is it's general and it applies in multiple fields. The theme is about understanding how to make choices. And there's two ways to generally make choices. And most people go one of two ways. Either they try to maximize the benefit of what they're aiming at, or they try to minimize the harm so that if they're wrong, they don't mess up. Now, as soon as you frame a point of view from that uh, particular reference, what happens is you can start to look at how decisions are made, whether it's business, whether it's making a trade, whether it's locking down a country, whether it's injecting the entire population with something. It's all about the same particular process. So what I want to do is I just want to start with Mike, and then we'll jump over to Paul, is to see how he thinks about decision-making processes, because essentially people in your positions um, when you're a serial entrepreneur, when you're a trader, when you're looking at businesses, when, you have, when you're leading a family, the decision always comes back down to your hands and you have to be held accountable for it. And the only way you can be held accountable for it is if you're given the authority over the people around you for whom you're going to make that decision. So if you're running a business and you do the democracy type situation, it doesn't work. You have to have a leader in charge. And that's why we have hierarchies in the military. That's why we have a CEO in a company. There's a person whose job it is to make a decision, especially the rough and ugly ones. And we want to start with Mike's point of view 
Mike, how do you make decisions? And what's your way of evaluating the unknowns when you're facing something completely unusual? Uh, well, thanks for the thanks for the easy question to start off with. Um, I, I would say that um, I'm probably uh, an intuitive rather than an analytic thinking style. So I think where where would I where would I take that? I'm very suspicious of facts. Um, facts, or, or, or I think facts have been changed, turned into something else that's now called the science. Uh, and this is a, a fixed and, and rigid point, apparently. Um, but fa facts tend towards, or the science tends towards completion. And I, I think there's a really big problem with that. And the problem is that, that um, things aren't discrete. Um, everything is continuous. So life is a continuous process. It isn't, it isn't divided into bits. Um, so you, 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 by, by inevitability, um, analysis or, or the science or facts or factual analysis, however you want to look at it, is only going to get you so far because it only tells you about what's happened in the past. Um, it reduces uh, your decision making to, to understanding what, what is known um, and what is known is a very small, uh, you know, a small island in a sea of uncertainty. So, so I would say that that, that my decision making is certainly intuitive, um, and uh, I, I try and function uh, from some, from a, a, a Ian McGilchrist calls it um, intellectual sympathy, and I, I really quite like that. So, so where 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 an analysis is is just a tool. Um, intuition is far far from being a tool. It's uh, rather than inspect the matter at hand, um, it, it, it places yourself or you place yourself with intellectual sympathy within an object uh, or within a decision making process or within a situation, within another person's way of thinking, um, within a within a, a series of events, in order to coincide with what's unique uh, uh, in that in that situation and that and that unique uniqueness if that can't be expressed as a function of other things i don't think so you have to be able to bring your intuition to bear so i would say that that that, that the, the danger at the moment is is we seem to um it seems to be decline in intuitive thinking with with a with a with a, with sort of the the only way to think now is is recognizably uh, scientific or analytical thinking and that, I think that creates many problems because it, it, it assumes a universe that is closed and obviously we live in a universe that is open so I'll go back to 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 my first point everything is continuous it isn't discrete um, and in order to understand a, a a world where the future is uncertain you need intuition so that would be my first off the bat answer and I'll just bat the ball over to Paul, who could probably put it much better than me. Um, so uh, it's interesting that we we both agree upon uh, the same conclusion, which is basically be careful of what you know. You know, the mathematics behind it, or the way I look at it is, it's similar to like compact space, right? Bounded and closed. And the, and the problem that you run into uh, with information um, is, we optimize, especially in modernity, we optimize everything that we know, uh, which ultimately fragilizes in some state space down the road. So we optimize some payoff space, like with businesses, they're always optimizing 
maximizing the, the profit or the return. The problem that you run into is when you do that, you're fragilizing something else in the state spaces that are surrounded by them. And that could be a problem. I always use the analogy of the Titan, you know, being a passenger on the Titanic. You can be in absolute excellent condition um, when you step on that boat, but you're ultimately exposed to the fragility of uh, the boat itself. Uh, and that can, and it dramatically affects all the passengers. So when people say, well, I manage my risk, I'm like, well, you do, but you have to, that's idiosyncratically. What you have to be careful of is the systemic risk that you're exposed to that you may not be aware of. And so one of the, where, I, where you really saw this kind of come to fruition is in 07, when all these companies that were expected to have managed their risk all of a sudden are exposed to the systemic nature and, the, and it ultimately almost collapsed the system. Why is that? Because in a, in a fat tail environment, you get this converging component that, that basically starts knocking down all the dominoes and things where you thought, oh, I've managed this risk because I've subcontracted it out to somebody else. The problem with that is, is what if that somebody else goes bankrupt or is or fails? Now, all of a sudden, you don't have the protection that you once thought. So I, I think when we start making decisions, we're always used to making decisions in what, what, what I would call compact space, which is bounded and close. So we, when we make these decisions, we always assume, oh, nothing can come and disrupt the game that we're playing. And I'm like, that's kind of the problem that we run into is most of the decisions that we make are designed around a game, whether or not be optimizing your grades or optimizing profits or, or something along those lines. And I think that's really what we're we're trying to to kind of drill down on is, you know, you can optimize a state space. The problem is you're exposing yourself to some type of fragility down the road that you may not be aware of. And I and I think that's kind of what we're all directly saying is be careful what you know, but more importantly, be careful of what you optimize in particular benefits because you're fragilizing the system at some point down the road. Nature obviously doesn't do that. Nature forces all the interactions to occur. And I think that's what we start to realize is you want to be more nature-like than you do want to be more human-like in the sense of humans want to optimize everything. And, and, and I think that that's kind of been the problem that has been exacerbated by academia, sciences, things of that nature. So that's kind of my twist on this thing is, is that's how I think about decisions is be careful of only making a decision that you're in, in, a, in a compact space. Be aware that you have other exposures that you may not be aware of. Don't you think it's interesting that most of the most of the things that have real impact on your life are intractable? So I think that's kind of following on from what you're saying and sort of taking it, uh, uh, you know, a stage beyond sort of investing and business and thinking about, um, you know, thinking about the things that really affect people's lives, time and space and consciousness and relationships, um, uh, their, their relationship, the sacred with God, with their friends and family. All of these things, you, you, the, 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 the most problems of interest in the real world are intractable to computation. They're intractable because you can't predict which way they're going to go. Um, I think it's quite interesting that, that almost everybody will utilise their intuitive self when dealing with those things. 
or, or try to, or, or probably not even realize that is what they are doing within their relationships, within time space, within their own consciousness. The, all of these things that can't be, that can't be recreated by science or can't be modeled by science, uh, to put it in, the, in that parlance. It, but people still use their intuition outside of those areas. They have to. I mean, they, we, we wouldn't have survived as a, as a, as a species otherwise. And yet people seem to want to put that that intuitive, their intuitive natures to one side when it comes to making decisions that are, that are heavily influenced by science or risk management. I think it's it's almost like people have allowed themselves to be overruled. Yeah, I, I think that you're you and I see very similar as far as you use the word intuition. I might use the word emotional, but it's the same kind of thing, which is basically this idea that we really make emotion, this real emo, we really make decisions with our emotion. Absolutely. They, they, what, what was it? You call it the Cartesian fantasy, I guess, wouldn't you? Of an isolated, decontextual, decontextualized, rational mind that doesn't exist. Um, no, nobody, nobody behaves like that. Everybody lives their life in a reverberative and responsive world. It's not, it's not linear or fixed. Uh, everything's always in flow. Nothing's ever static. Um, so, so yeah, I think we're on, on exactly the same page. How, how are we doing, Ace? No, that's excellent. Well, what I'm gathering from you guys here is a concept of information loss, right? So when you uh, take a set of decisions and you distill it to the, quote, unquote, let's imagine, let's take Paul's example of, of maximizing profit. So what you do there is you've lost information, right? And as soon as you lose information, initially you don't notice it because the abstraction layer might not be so far off the, off the key. But that decision-making process of saying, okay, this has to maximize profit, for example, let's just say subprime mortgages and loans and whatnot, you took an entire banking infrastructure and you said to all of them that we're going to go for profit. Not such a bad idea. But what you did was you took that next evolutionary step, which was to take the abstraction where you lost information and take one more step with it, which was, hey, the only way we seem to be making profit is if we make these loans. Now you got a secondary uh, uh, order effect situation brewing. And as soon as you got a second firm doing it, that fragilization that Paul was talking about starts to manifest in a much bigger and much more faster clip. And as soon as everybody goes in that direction, all of a sudden you kind of forgot what you guys were originally supposed to do. Now this is, every, this is what everybody's doing. And so that loss of information starts to compound and eventually you get to a dead end where what you thought was a profitable solution actually bankrupts you. So I noticed that same uh, strategy is applied when you talk about follow the science. When you're talking about follow the science, the vast majority of people don't even know what the science is, let alone what following it would actually imply. What they did was they said, okay, we have a very complex system. Clearly, there's nothing more complex than the entire planet. Clearly, there's nothing more complex second to that, which is the human immune system. And then on top of that, you put the economy. So you have three massive complex systems, systems all in conjunction, and you decide to make a couple of very reductionist-based decisions, which is to say, let's lock everything down. But the problem with locking everything down, as you guys remember, is that they didn't do the lockdown the way they were supposed to because you physically can't do it. There was always going to be somebody somewhere who's going to be out and about. And the problem is you've reduced the metric of containment to lockdown, but you didn't take into consideration the information loss, which is what if the guy you're locking down 
is completely healthy, but the guy who's a friend of yours who asks you for a favor to let you go do something, you let him out the door and you kind of, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, don't say anything. For example, that guy happens to be, I don't know, the CEO of Walmart or Costco. And he says, hey, you kind of have to let our store open and it's it's okay if people are in there and it's we don't really have that much uh, requirement for spacing and social distancing. See, this is this is the information loss process once again showing up. You reduced it as a variable for small businesses, but you didn't allow for the interaction to take place where somebody much bigger was able to influence how that decision was going to be implemented. And so as a consequence, you got the worst of both worlds. You destroyed lives on the one hand, and you made a farce of, and a the, theatrical show of the entire operation because you let other places go. People where you're supposed to get healthy, get fit, go to the gym, you can't go there. Why? Lockdown. Why? We need to stop the spread. Why? We need to bend the curve. Okay, great. Oh, however, you can go to Costco and you could buy uh, a shopping cart full of potato chips and you can come home and eat that. And while you're, while you're there, you could interact with whoever happens to be at that store. So this again is about the abstraction there missing the critical component of it. So as I would summarize it, it kind of works in the following way. You guys have heard the concept of the hot hand fallacy, yes? Mm-hmm. Okay, so for the listeners who may not know, what happened was somebody was watching basketball and they said, hey, that guy's got a hot hand. Gamblers know this. Um, people who play sports know this. People who lift weights know this. Sometimes you go in the gym and you, you just feel like you're on fire. You could just throw an extra 10 pounds and it wouldn't even matter. But other days, the weight that you would normally do 15, 12 reps with, you can't even get eight out of, out of it. So you know how your body feels. There's a, there's a flow state. You're in the zone. Everything is right. Everything is clicking. And a couple of quote-unquote data scientists decided, you know what? I don't think that's true. So what did they do? Well, they looked at the, I think it was one game of the Boston Celtics, one season of the Boston Celtics, and they started to measure and say, okay, that guy looks like, quote-unquote, he has a hot hand. Let's let's measure how it, how it actually is. Let's see if it's random, if he's scoring, or if there's actually, like, pockets of, of like, you know, uh, data sets where he's constantly scoring. And when they did that analysis, they came back and said, yeah, it doesn't work. Now, what did they do? All they did was they wanted to see how many times the person was scoring in a consecutive order. And they said that because they were watching that and there wasn't um, any uh, anything other than random, therefore the hot hand doesn't exist. Now, that's a extraction layer of data sets. And for scientists to, to, to be credible, you have to have data. But what's the problem with this situation? The problem with this situation is very, very simple. If I'm playing... Let's just say the four of us are playing pool and Mike has, to, Mike has a hot hand. What we will try very hard to do is if I, if I have a shot and after me, I know it's going to be Mike. What I'm going to do is if I can't get the ball in, my strategy is going to shift. I'm going to say, you know what? I'm not having a good day sinking balls in. But what I can do is I can make it very difficult for Mike to make shots. So I'm going to try to nullify his hot hand advantage, so to speak, by positioning the cue ball in such a way where he can't get an easy clean shot and now i really want to test quote unquote how hot his hand is so same thing happens in basketball right oh this guy's having a hot hand let's double him up or he was getting three pointers let's not let him in maybe he was getting layups i don't know what it was so the, the teams are going to adjust dynamically on the fly but if you're standing back and doing a layer of abstraction by analyzing the data after the fact you're not taking into account what was the defensive ad- adjustment that was made against that guy what were the shots he was initially taking? Sometimes you'll see it if you watch a game. A guy will score three-pointers back-to-back. But now the defense adjusts to it, 
and all of a sudden he's not getting those same shots and he flows out of the zone and he's no longer making the shots but from your analysis point of view which is one layer of abstraction you lost some information the information you lost in this case is just what happened to the defense as they adjusted so unfortunately that same flawed idea that was initially considered good science because it had good data propagated i think the whole original paper came out in 1986 and that idea was built upon for at least 20 years where people are constantly pushing the same fallacious idea back and forth and then building other homes around that same idea. In fact, there's a paper, I'll, I'll send a link to you guys. Uh, it's not a, really even a paper, it's just this Bridge Capital company. They posted it, they said this is exactly how they got it wrong. So it, it ties back to Mike's point of view that these are not discrete states of point, this is, this is continuous. The defense was not taken into consideration. The position when a guy was making shots was not taken into consideration. What if while the guy was having a hot hand, all of a sudden he, on his way back to the defensive position, he kind of pulled his hamstring a little bit. Now he's a little uncomfortable. All of those factors that nature, as Paul would say, that plays the final hand, wasn't taken into consideration. Well, I think it's interesting sort of to, to summarize in, in, a, in a very few words. Um, it, it, what, we're, what we're talking about in a way is the difference between rules and principles, aren't we? So principles are ground up and rules are top down. So anything that is imposed from the top down, um, you know, an attempt to close the system, if you like, has the information loss that you're looking about, that you're talking about. If you if you live your life, play your basketball game, um, you know, make your medical choices, make your public health choices via rules, you will automatically lose um, the contextual information that that actually actually delivers more of the truth. If you do all of those things via a set of flexible principles from the ground up, then you give yourself the opportunity to absorb new information as it comes along. And I think what what we seem to have done in the last two and a half years is tear up thousands of years of evolutionary principles in order to um, impose top-down rules that that would be that would be my view principles are, are, are a set of um, thinking thought patterns that enable you to deal with life as it as it unwinds in front of you uh, and rules are um, uh, you know a set of criteria that are, are only uh, reflect, reflecting what you've seen before, so I, th I think you're always you're always going to have that information loss, and I think that 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 seems to be it's all part of the same sort of the science, the uh, the lack of uh, the, the, the the total conformity. All of this really is is a, is a rules based world that we've now very suddenly seem to be living in. We certainly had hadn't haven't got here as as human beings. Um, by by progressing in a rules-based reaction to what happens to us, so I think I think that that would be the distinction I would make based based on what you're saying there. Yeah, off of what Michael's saying, the this is kind of at least the way I, I view it is this is where kind of probability runs into some tr trouble, and what I mean by that is in science and in uh, gangs and in corporations, things of that nature. 
you're 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 dealing with a very structured environment and almost game like you know people use the idea of game theory and probability works well in those type of environments where the information is i'm going to go back to the i'm going to keep going back to this idea of compact space it's bounded and closed meaning like there's nothing that comes in that can possibly distort uh the game itself because the game has a very structured rule-based system similar to what michael's saying and I think that's where the real problems begin. We take those ideas that prob probability should only be used in these very uh, bounded, enclosed, structured, rule-based environments, and then we extrapol extrapolate them out into an unbounded, open environment that has multiplicative, multidimensional interactions. And that's when the real problems begin. So I, I think we have to be very, very, very careful about this idea of taking man-made tools or human-made tools or whatever they are ideas like science and probability and then applying them in in all these different spaces and in for example science to me is a subspace of a subspace of a subspace of a subspace and meaning like it starts out as a it's evidence-based it has to be measurable it has to it has to follow certain criteria to be an analyzed and so when you start looking at it like that you realize you're dealing with a very infinitesimal amount of informational analysis that you can possibly evaluate. And so that's why I say you have to be careful when you use these tools because we're, 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 we're applying them in very complex environments that have very high dimensional interactions. And that can create a lot of problem. It's fine when the, when the game is closed and bounded and the rules are clearly defined. The problem we run into is we take that idea and then we extrapolate that into the real world. And we're like, wait a second, we, we didn't see this occurring. The answer is, yeah, because people optimize state spaces, corporations optimize money. Some people optimize status or uh, they optimize trying to get degrees. And, and in doing that, they don't realize that, that they're going to have to take those optimizations and apply them to the real world. And that's when the real harm starts to occur is is this idea of extrapolation rule based systems that Michael was alluding to or pointing out and, and, and trying to apply that to the real world. And that's where the harm is, is we take rule based structured uh, devices and we try to apply them to the real world. And it's in the real world is so used to interaction or is not used to. It's designed for multidimensional interactions. That's when the problems begin. So that's that's how I see all this. And that's why I, I, I am like I am very similar with Michael is you just have to be very careful about the stuff that you're using and very making absolute concrete decisions on them and going, well, that's, you know, it's, you know, my favorite words are, well, that's clearly a fact or that's evidence or where's your evidence and all this other noise. And it's like you guys don't understand that when you look at this stuff. It, it works in a very closed environment. But the moment you let it loose on the world. That's a totally different beast. And that's where I get kind of aggravated is they may, they're very casual about, oh, it's science or it's, I have the evidence. I'm like, yeah, well, guess what? Maybe in 10 years, it might be a problem or five years or 20 years or something like that. I, I All I'm trying to say is it's not as clear and it's not as crystal clear as you want to lead it to believe just because you're using a, a tool. And you've weaponized it and said, well, it's it's clearly science. I can apply it to anything. I'm like, no, 
It doesn't work that way because it's evidence-based and science is evidence-based. What about the things you don't know about? We haven't included those. And they're like, well, that's, and, and that's, that's my big grind with all this. No, I totally agree with that. And um, one of the things that jumps out when you, when you talk about the way things have been structured is initially, if you, if you go back and, and study how science was done, initially it was just basically gentlemen sitting around thinking about a particular process and, you know, it goes back to Newton or Galileo if you want to go further back and, you know, Tycho Brahe if you want to go even further back. Uh, somewhere along the lines, a bunch of people start to notice that there's money to be made in this, there's prestige in this, there's world-class fame in this, there's immortality in this. And all of a sudden, like you said, the game starts to get played, right? Initially, if you think about the first person who decided to sit down and think about nature, nobody else was pursuing it. So in a way, it was pure. And in another way, what it was is initially wasn't worthy of being corrupted, but now it's entirely corrupted. And the reason we know that it's entirely corrupted is we look at the language that they use when they talk about things. For up until 1960, the whole concept of peer review didn't really mean anything. Nowadays, people are conditioned to immediately say, well, I don't trust anything until it's peer reviewed. So I'm like, peer review doesn't mean it's reviewed by your peers. You get what I'm saying? So the, the person who's at your level if you're a high quality scientist, you probably don't have that many peers to start with. If you're truly a breakthrough uh, type of thinker where you're looking at places where nobody else is seeing it, you don't have any peers. So who's gonna really evaluate your work? Nature is. So what we have to do is take a look at your concept, allow us to formulate a test so we can run your concept through that test and see what happens. That's not the same thing as, well, these are 50 guys who have excellent pedigrees and they're gonna read your paper and they're gonna disagree with your paper. And we have to ask the question, what are they disagreeing based on? Is it just pedigree? Is it personal petty gripes? Is it a dislike for the person because maybe they're cantankerous in nature? We don't know that, but somehow it's all been distilled to science doesn't mean anything unless it's peer reviewed. But as we saw during COVID, even that peer review process itself can be captured. So you have layers that are, that are built in, which is now you have gatekeepers Prestigious journals have people who won't let just anybody, quote unquote, publish because they don't want to allow noise to get into the system. But sometimes those same people who are avoiding a specific type of noise from getting into the system are also suffocating potential new signals from a new harvest, from a whole new territory where you can say, OK, let's break into that area and see if we can harvest some fruits. So in essence, what's actually happened here is this capture that we're always talking about. The people who are meant to police everybody else are now policing themselves to not police certain voices. So it turns into this weird echo chamber where if you said anything, like Mike was uh, one of the first people I recall um, saying that the lockdown costs are gonna exceed the benefits of anything these people have imagined. And at the time he was saying it, I remembered, it was still relatively early in 2020. And I think what happened was initially most of us were on board with this idea and I'll be first to admit I didn't know enough so I said okay when things are bad let's apply the precautionary principle it later dawned on me that the precautionary principle has a fundamental flaw which is that it takes human beings to apply that same solution to other human beings and human beings have favorites oh my favorite guy works he owns Costco my other favorite guy owns Walmart eh, we're gonna let it slide as soon as I saw that start to happen I realized uh oh I made a big mistake I misunderstood the implications of such a blanket statement. And I learned my lesson very, very quickly from that.
but it was interesting when Mike starts to talk about it. Me and Mike were talking, and he specifically said to me uh, that, hey, the cost of these lockdowns is going to be much worse than anything that this thing could have ever done. And so I want to bring it back to Mike and say, how did you see that so quickly in early 2020 when it took the rest of the world? And actually, some parts of the world still haven't seen that point of view. I think experience of being exposed to risky situations a lot. So so you you when you've negotiated a lot of business deals, done a lot of sold a lot of things, when you've been involved in business for 30 years or 28 years as it was then, your antennae is alert. You you're aware, you're very alert to the the, the things that I that I considered firstly is 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 you can't really trust um, politicians, you can't really trust um, corporate CEOs. You can't trust the billionaire class. So, so if you if you take that as a principle, so rather than thinking of a a rule, say look that you know, lockdown, don't go with that further than 300 meters from your house or whatever some of the crazy rules were, uh, and then but actually go back to thinking in terms of a principle. So my principle was um, deception is Darwinian. Always be very, very careful when dealing with human beings if the if some of the things they're advocating is going to make them very, very rich. Um, so, so when you look at the at the, at the sort of the series of events that evolved, I, I went back to the principle of being suspicious. Um, so I did a few things. I I read um, the Pfizer um trial documentation so that that effectively i looked at it and said what would i do if i wanted to hide that this um particular injection didn't work very well so i worked with the principle of what would i do as a long-time entrepreneur uh, i think i've said before you've got to be prepared to cut a few corners if you want to succeed as a as a business person what would i do so it's that sort of uh intellectual sympathy that 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 sort of gives you the the opportunity to use your intuition what would i do if i was a if i was a work for pfizer or moderna what would i do if i was a a a politician with an ulterior motive and and so you start looking at things through a different set of principles and through a different lens and those are all the things that made me made me alert and then really when you think about what what we surrendered um effectively people surrendered their freedom and I I believe that freedom is the basis the foundation to everything you can't love somebody unless you're free to love them um you 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 can't uh you can't enjoy anything that is forced upon you I I certainly can't I guess some people enjoy the um the 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 constructed fun of cruises and the like but it doesn't work for me but I think I think freedom to be the basis for everything else nothing uh, and I think I've said before, millions of people died um, to to maintain these freedoms, and then we we give them up for something that that, as far as I could see, uh, it, it looked like infections were already declining on the first lockdown. It looked like they were going down uh, even before we locked down. So so there was there was holes. There was the um, the cruise ship. I think that was sort of a, a petri dish of of how how infectious and how deadly um this uh, this uh illness was <clears throat> so i think when when you're when you're always on the lookout excuse me uh for being deceived 
it, it gives you the opportunity to to observe the holes in the argument and that the holes you could have driven. I thought you could have driven a truck through them. It was quite a surprise to find out I was almost on my own. I must uh, give a shout out to George Cooper and say that George and I were on our own. I think around about March, April 20, it felt like we're the only two people in Britain um, that were against the lockdown. So uh, and I think that the opportunity that that um, governments then had to remove freedom. I think that was that was the scariest thing of all for me, because that that is, the, as I say, I think that is the foundation to to all human life. Um, so that they would that would be my summary of where, how I got to my position. You know, what's kind of interesting is uh, as because we haven't really we've never talked about this stuff uh, in a um, in a format like this. And what I find very interesting is the we all kind of come to the same conclusion. We just use a different path and in, in the words that we use. But it's always a reoccurring term, re- reoccurring theme that there's a skeptical nature about kind of how we look at the world. When when I look at these things, in, in particular, man-made things like academia, religion, science, politics, um, what, what you, or even the law, what you start to realize is these things can be weaponized and they can be used against the exact thing that they're trying to either promote and or protect. And so rule-based systems, getting back to this rule-based stuff, is it's it's really interesting how uh, over a long enough timeline, people will figure out ways to weaponize the system to use it to their advantage. And that's the stuff that you have to be careful of. And they'll use it under the guise of reason and logic. And they'll say, well, you know, if you if you if you look at this from a scientific perspective, I'm like, well, yeah, that's that's great, but that only applies to a subset of a subset of something that we can possibly evaluate. What about all the multiplicative interactions in the future that we could possibly run into? And I think that the the same reoccurring theme is always uh, driving, which is you have to be very cautious about having too much confidence in man-made systems. Even if they're righteous to start out with, they emerge over time and people figure out ways to kind of rig the system. And this rigging of the system is where the real problems begin because people are embedded in the system. They figure out, oh, I can do this and this and manipulate it in such a way that I can actually gain an advantage and that's really where the everybody expects everybody to play by the rules. But the simple fact is there's just a good portion of people that figure out how to, to weaponize the system and use it to their advantage. And I think that's what we're all kind of pointing out is you just have to be cautious of, you know, people, you know, mandating or imposing their righteousness onto you and be very skeptical of those things. Wait, so Paul, so you're saying – you're saying I can't go see my mistresses? Are you saying that I'm not allowed to see my mistresses while everybody's in lockdown? Is that what you're saying? You're welcome to do whatever you want. I'm just saying that that you have to be very cautious of the of the of the people that want to impose uh, rules and regulations. They don't always. They're not always doing it for righteous reasons. And and even corporations or science or anything else is when you have these very structured, man-made structured environments they can be weaponized and you have to be very cautious of that weaponization, very similar to the peer review stuff that you're referring to, right? That gets weaponized somehow. Guys figured out how to, 
how to how to manipulate that system. And once they figure out that formula, they're going to use it to their advantage. So knowing everything we know about the COVID pandemic, how do you think we will react to the next pandemic as a whole? And how do you think we should react to the next pandemic? Mr. Driver, you want to go first on this one? No, you go first. You go first for a change. Let's let's mix it up. Then I can then I can oh, copy what you said. The, the, <laughs> that's what you know. My sense is people are going to be a lot more skeptical. They're going to because I think one of the things that this, you know, everybody was bought in the program. OK, well, I guess I'll go along with what what they're trying to 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 impose on us. And and I think that one of the things that people are initial was like, oh, I'll do whatever they kind of tell me to do. I just think there'll be a lot more skepticism uh, in particular to the mandates. And I, I think that people will push back a little bit more than they did before and be a lot more leery of um, of being forced to do something for the good of the people. Because at the end of the day, it, they kept changing the, the story as the information started coming out. And then they're like, well, that's science. I'm like, no, you guys promoted it as these are absolutes. We're guaranteed. We know everything there is to know. And instead of saying, hey, listen, we're not really sure about this thing. So this is what we're going to try to do. But they didn't do that. They always made it sound like, hey, we're the scientists and we're the politicians. We know what's best for you. So shut the hell up and, and, and take the medicine and do what you're supposed to do. And, and that's where I get a little bit aggravated is that that uh, weaponizing science, weaponizing your, your, your status or your, 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 your level of influence in a way that is that that forces other people to kind of. Uh, go down a road that we just didn't really know about. So I, I think at the at the core of all this is people will be a lot more. They'll push back more and they'll be more skeptical going forward. Um, I I don't think there'll be another pandemic. H- however, this last one came about or or whatever it was. I think there's a new show playing at the theater now. So I think that that will be. Um, mostly memory hold, I think. So there's a there's a new show. They they, they weaponize the science. I, I don't think we've seen the end of 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 the weaponizing of science, but I think that they're, they're weaponizing something new now. So they're they're weaponizing um, virtue uh, in in the shape of this kind of fake fake compassion. So so I don't see. I I think we will have a series of crises, but I don't think it's going to be. Um, I don't think it's going to be a pandemic, so I don't think I don't think that's something we're going to have to deal with. But the 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 the, the new con or the new show, the new theatre show, you know, right now it's 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 weaponizing um, the sort of climate change debate or or, or whatever that is. Uh, it's it's sort of uh, they're doing something quite interesting with war. So, so war now is a is a compassionate act. Apparently, it's good for the environment as well, if you believe these people. So, I don't, I don't think we're going. I don't think they're going to run a, another pandemic on us. I think they're they're running the next psychological operations now. Um, so, though those really are around three things. I think they're around uh, the environment. Um, they're around uh, identity, uh, and they are uh, around um, the virtues of war. Um, so I, I don't think there's room right now for them. I don't think don't think they particularly need to run another pandemic past us. So I think they're busy with those those three those three things. So so you're seeing um, 
if you like, the second order effects of of the, the, those particular uh, operations in terms of the energy prices in in Europe at the moment, which which are which are which are interestingly two out of the three of those the, the games that are being played at the moment are going to achieve the end of destroying sort of independent business. So so you don't need to be a conspiracist. Um, perhaps some of this sounds like conspiracy theory, but you don't need to be a conspiracist. You just need to follow the money. And at, at the end of uh, at the end of the chain of war in the Ukraine, at the end of uh, the chain of net zero is um, a shift, a dramatic shift of uh, uh, of, of all commercial transaction. Uh, going from the small to the very large, uh, and I think that 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 certainly seems to be what is uh, what is being attempted at this stage. So I don't I don't expect to see another pandemic. Um, I think uh, a controversial belief. I think I think pan- pandemics are created uh, one way or another. Uh, whether they are created in labs, I've got severe doubts about that, or whether they are created by by um, uh, overreaction and panic, I think that's probably more more closer to the truth. But uh, I don't think we'll see that now. I think I think we are we are in the midst of, of three three different games, and those games I think at the moment are proving to be quite successful. It's going to be very interesting to see how this energy crisis plays out, and we, we're interested to see whether I think whether populations populations that did submit to the most uh, incredible um, surrendering of freedom, of logic, of, 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 of their body uh, autonomy and integrity, whether those populations are now going to submit to uh, lights off um, and the destruction of the, 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 the local economies. Um, uh, how, how much more can populations submit themselves to? Well, I think we're about to find out. Uh, I think that's very uncertain at the moment. So, so that's my. I, I don't see another pandemic coming. I, I largely agree with Paul. I think if if another one did come, I think people are done with uh, lockdowns. I think most sensible people realise now that they cause far more harm than than than. I don't, I don't think there was any good. They were just just harmful. Uh, and I think people are becoming more resistant. Perhaps uh, certainly large swathes. Of the working classes, the blue-collar classes, I don't see them uh, submitting again to to another yeah, uh, uh, product from the pharmaceutical industry without without there being much more um, uh, thorough and long-term um, testing. So, so I think that I think that bit of the the show's over, but I think we we were only on the first chapter. And I think we're dealing with a whole different set of problems now. So that would be my view. It's very interesting, Mike. And um, what I what I gathered from listening to both of you and from my own observations is I've always heard of the concept of a banana republic, but I guess we've now seen a banana pandemic. Um, and one of the interesting elements of it, as Paul was talking, I realized something very interesting um, as Mike was talking about, you know, what if I'm the CEO of Pfizer or the CEO of Company X? For the very longest period of time, these companies have created world-class marketing departments. And a part of their marketing budget is the lobbying that goes with it. And they've become a force to reckon with. And we've seen that because universities get whole 
wings built, quote-unquote, for research. It's funded by the same people. Doctors obviously just prescribe things, not all of them, obviously, a, a specific percentage. But what you start to notice is if they take control of the levers where those people are graduating from, and they start to convince those people that the only solution to any kind of sickness is pharmaceutical intervention, um, and you get a generation of doctors trained that way, and you get another generation brought up who only think that science can only be done if there's peer review and nothing outside of peer review exists, what you start to do there is you detach thought from nature because you're no longer testing in the lab. What you're doing now is testing a paper against another person saying that's a good paper, right? That's that's sort of the problem that we're starting to uh, witness. And the other element of it that sort of surprised me was to witness the depth and scale of the intermingling of these different systems. For example, it was my understanding since I came to Canada as a kid when we were watching it, and I remember this because when we came from Afghanistan, my dad used to tell me that in Afghanistan, you couldn't rely on the news because the news was essentially talking for the government. But at least in the West, the news is talking for the people against the government to hold them accountable. And what we noticed during the last couple of years is that the media is the spear and the spear is aimed at the people. There's literally pieces you can find where they're saying, oh, I'm done with these people who don't want a, a flu shot. Uh, uh, you know, if you don't want to participate in society, I could care less if you show up at the hospital and you're dying. I won't treat you. And these are doctors talking. And the people who are echoing these points of view are, quote unquote, journalists who are saying, yeah, it's OK that you just discarded the Hippocratic Oath. We're cool with that. So I watched this. I'm like, wow, the government. Some of uh, the members of whom are clearly indebted to the people who are donating to them, the entire muscle architecture and uh, system that the pharmaceutical companies have developed is to be pushing these ideas out. Every time you watch the news brought to you by Pfizer, brought to you by, you know, ask your doctor about this particular medication. Those guys got in bed early and pushed the message through the media and they pushed the government regulators, so to speak, to fall in line. And what made it scary was there was only one country that actually actively dissented, a Western country called Sweden. They actually dissented, which was surprising. I'm like, how, how come they didn't get those guys? What happened there? So that we need to actually investigate that and <clears throat> compound all that with some of the people who we thought were very smart, intelligent, mathematically oriented type people. And they made the same mistake. I remembered there was a moment I was listening to a particular person talking and he said let's extrapolate this based on the mathematical model of x y and z and he just started extracting and it's kind of like i, I realized as soon as that happened something very strange happened to me i watched it and i remembered going into a business meeting a few years earlier where i was pitching to a vc and he asked me what's your business model look like and i sort of showed him oh well here's some of our track record and here's what we think where we're going with projections and he immediately said stop because your projections don't mean anything here. What I need to see is what actually happened. And as soon as I saw the quote unquote infection rates exponentially being extracted, I immediately remembered that VC who was talking to me and he said, stop. What you're doing here could be fairy tale because the error that you're building into that model and because it's exponential, it'll take off in a direction that there's no way anybody could predict. And more than likely it's wrong. And that's where that humility comes into play. 
And so I witnessed all of that, and I started to see the corruption tied into multiple layers. And as I've been listening to the two of you talk, I realized one of the things that corruption does, whether unknowingly or unwittingly, is that it allows you to hide information. So that information loss that problem what we were originally discussing gets amplified because now there's incentive to hide that information as well. So you have lost through abstraction, and now you have lost through coercion. So it's sort of a double whammy situation. And so what that leads us to believe is that as soon as there's a coordinated message, the first thing you should really look for is the dissent because actual science, real debate, business models all have dissent. In, such, in essence, business models are built on dissent. Oh, your company sells uh, pizza like this. Well, my company sells pizza like this. That's dissent. It's not the same like, oh, well, we're all going to sell it the same way. No, that wouldn't work. The market works because dissent is available to be produced. When the market is centralized, there is no dissent. So my my you know antenna, as, as has been sharpened by both Paul and Mike, has been tuned to looking for dissent. And I'm starting to notice that the entirety of the structures of power, whether it's media, whether it's government, whether it's um, uh, tech, what they've done is they've made dissent such a hostile thing that they've hollowed out those institutions. And the people who you really want in those positions for the next big problem that shows up, they're not going to be there anymore because they were shown the exit, sometimes forcibly. So I'll, I'll pass that mic back over to, to Paul to ask him to think about what happens to those interactions across time when you've hollowed out a system of signal and all you've done is a place where, where a specific category of bandwidth of noise can be amplified. Yeah, you're, you're running into a reoccurring theme in all of these things, and, and that is this. Things like science, which is supposed to be this idea of something pure where we don't really try to prove, we falsify, and so forth and so on. And what we realized is, in particular, is this idea of how does something like that get weaponized in a system? And that's where the real that's where the real skepticism should begin is people will take something that is supposed to be genuinely clean, like science or religion, and they'll weaponize it and they'll figure out ways to manipulate it to move to, to get the outcome that they really want politically or financially or, or something along those lines. So figure out a way to optimize using something pure and clean like science and say, well, it's, it's scientific. It's, it should be clearly obvious that we use scientific procedures. And they use this slight nuance by saying, well, it's science. So if, if, if we're using science, you know, it's, we, we proved this. And, and they kind of do this kind of bait and switch thing where they're like, Everybody knows science is about falsification, but when it's weaponized, they allude to the fact that, well, we're using science so that we proved our, our point. And the simple fact is you've proved up to a particular, you've looked at a particular data set of data, but we haven't unleashed that set of data in the multiplicative environment. And that's when the real, the real harm begins. So I'll keep going back to the idea that, that, the number one problem we're running into, whether or not it be information loss or or knowledge-based stuff or or any of those things along those lines, we have to keep in mind that it's not it, the problem isn't of being right or wrong. It's when we are, it's the weaponization of people in modernity and how those things can really work against the system. And that's that's really what my big alarm bell is, or that's my biggest concern is we're taking things that 
like mathematics and probability, and we're weaponizing them and science and, and religion and things of these natures. And we're figuring out ways to, to use them against, against people. And that's what I'm trying. That's my big kind of focus is, you know, the information loss is extremely important and, 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 and those things are, are crucial. But the bigger issue is, or to me, the bigger issue is how do the things that we consider to both be uh, structurally pure and logically and reasonably clean, how do those things get weaponized in the political environments? How do they get weaponized by corporations? That, to me, is the bigger, bigger fundamental problem is that's when the real harm begins. That's how we create fat tails, in my my opinion, is that that's what we run into. So that's kind of how I look at this this whole thing with you know con the conspiracy stuff. I mean, what what George Carlin say, right? Conspiracy. If interests align, you know, you don't need a formal conspiracy or something like that. And it's the same re re reoccurring theme. Is it's about trying to to get people to think a particular way about a particular. Uh, situation and and that's where i start to go hey be cautious of that i'm not saying don't go down that road i'm just saying you have to yeah that's the alarm bell that just be aware of that and that's that's my biggest concern is the weaponization of these devices that man has created both from a reason and logic standpoint like science mathematics and probability and and how do they get weaponized i think i have a, a theory for you guys to think about how how they have become weaponized or how the power has shifted. So I think there's a growing realization that daily life is is overshadowed on almost every uh, almost every level by the internet, by the internet complex, if you like. Um, so the the digital services that used by people everywhere are subordinated to the power of the corporations, the intelligence agencies cartels and the psychopathic billionaire class so i think i think that that to me that feels like the methodology um and that this this billionaire class these transnational corporations they're on a rampage of planetary looting and destruction and they dress it up lots and lots of other ways you know children where did children learn from now i think they probably learn more vocabulary from a machine than they do from their mothers um, so I think I think this internet complex or um, this this connection that everybody has to have to the to the phones, the screens, the the digital tools, I think that is the the media by which uh, by it, this is the media of the how that Paul's talking about. I think. Yeah, I think you I think you're you're you're, you're spot on, Michael. I, I think that this optimization of technology. Uh, has squeezed the humanity out of uh, of life, so to speak. You you run into these things where the the, the optimization factor of technology in relationship to uh, the humanity that gets lost. And so the more the, the it's the, the 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 simple fact is the more you you connect te technologically, the more you fragilize the humanity of 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 human interaction. That's why when you talk to people sometimes and you go to have a conversation with them they almost short circuit they don't know what to say they don't know how to interact because they haven't developed those skill sets and so i i think that's to the to the point of michael was making is we've squeezed the humanity out of um being human 
with these technological advancements. And we do, and again, we're, we're getting back to the, again, this idea of this reoccurring theme of when you optimize a benefit, something like connections through networks, you fragilize something else. And most of the time, what you're fragilizing is what makes us human. It, it removes that part of it. And, and I think that's my big alarm bell, or that's the thing that scares the tar out of me is, is the more we're connected, the more we're actually being becoming emotionally disconnected from being human. I think it's um, I think what they're doing is that you know, intuition is a threat to them. To go back to my original sort of original point, in, intuition is a, is a threat to this. They, they don't want that. Um, uh, it, 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 they're trying to create a world that's based on administrative procedures power of technology, you know, belief in the, the, the abstract, if you like, over the embodied um, humans, uh, you know, they're, they're reductionist. Uh, and and the, the, the power of intuition, the, 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 the strength of intuition is something that needs to be destroyed, I think. But I, I, I think where that leaves humans is that I think we, we've got a planet of traumatized people. I think people know something's wrong. That life feels unsatisfying and it feels incomplete. Um, and, and I think that the way uh, the, you know, I'll call them the billionaire class for want of a different, different terminology is their strategy to deal with that is to keep manufacturing crises. So so to go back, I don't think people feel comfortable in the world that Paul, Paul describes. I think they, they instinctively and intuitively feel that something's wrong. But but it's very difficult to express that um, intuitive human feeling if you're running into one crisis after another. And I think that's sort of circles back to what I was saying before about our, our three new three new crises that we've had manufactured for us now. Um, the creation of alarm or the creation of crises and the creation of fear is big business. It pays well. 100% on that front, what I was going to just interject real quick to give a little context to it, uh, to just wrap up Mike and Paul's point is as follows, right? So if you think about music, think of music as liquid architecture and think of architecture as frozen music. And if you go back to, you know, anybody who visits Italy will tell you, you have to go and take a look at the great art that's around there, the sculptures, uh, the paintings. And you walk around these days and you notice that modern art is anything but that, right? And if you listen to really great music, there's a layer of rebellion built into it. You listen to the music that's out there now, that's all been squeezed out of it. So to bring it back to Mike's point of view, if you squeeze the human out of the person, you end up with a hollow person who will willingly disconnect with their own family members based on what they heard on the internet or based on what they heard on the news. That's very alarming. I don't think that's ever happened in history. I don't think people understand the gravity of the situation where you take a person and you weaponize them against their own family or, the, or their own friends. Or worse, worst case scenario, you have people who plead and cry about the fact that they couldn't visit a loved one who was told live in a hole for the last aspect of your life because flatten the curve and that person died and they weren't allowed to be visited Meanwhile, the people who are imposing these rules were having parties. Now, that the level of anger and rage that that creates, that's going to have a, a nasty side effect when it boomerangs backwards. And similarly, the people you've hollowed out, um, that's a temporary Pyrrhic victory. And what I mean by that is what you're going to have is that person is going to wake up one day and they're going to realize that they were lied to, that they cut off the wrong people, 
that they trusted the wrong people and now they're going to want to take their vengeance and aim it in a particular direction. And that direction might not necessarily go in the direction that people think it will go. It might go completely against the quote unquote billionaire class, the ruling class, because that that type of fomenting of hatred is actually to give the, the best word for it is it's evil. Because think about it. Life is nothing but about relationships. And I don't know this as a person who sits down in front of uh, three monitors writing code all day, but everything I do is in service of humans who use whatever tools I build. And I think about this point of view from your entire life, if you just map out the next 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years, whatever lifespan you have in front of you, the only thing that really matters is the relationships you have. Who are your friends? Who is your family? How big is your family growing? What kind of value are you bringing to those people? What kind of people those people are turning into? That's what it's all about. And if you start to sever those value ideals, what kind of a society are you really going to create? And so I think that the the harm and the direction that we're going in in, in that way, as per Mike's um, concerns for the next theater of this particular show, is the dehumanization was step one. And step two, as we clearly see it, is, oh, uh, let's forget that Ernest Hemingway wrote A Farewell to Arms about the horrors of war. Let's, once again, lionize a war. For what? So somebody explained to me how we went from A Farewell to Arms to everybody put on a Ukraine flag on their Twitter bio. I don't know how that happened. Maybe you guys do. I think the internet swiped everyone's memories. Um, was it... Uh... Was it Rilke? You'll know this guy. Always get it wrong. Is it Rilke who said singing is belie- is singing is being? On on I'm, your point of architecture is frozen music. I, I believe I believe it was Rilke. Yes, and he said you know live to the point of tears, and and and, and those lessons are forgotten so quickly. And, so, and uh, I can't that? do this in German. You might be able to do it in the German, but didn't he all say or also say you must change your life? <laughs> It all depends on who the person is, what the tone and incantation of that particular message is. Because what I wanted to bring back to you, Mike, was let's 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 imagine a different scenario for, for a second. Let's imagine that there is another pandemic. Let's imagine it's a real pandemic. And let's imagine that the voices that are allowed to be amplified constantly are the voices of actual dissent. What would a world look like in an ideal situation where the people who are allowed to speak are multiple camps of dissent? And each camp has its own particular point of view. And what would that allow us to create as a humanity, as a whole? That's what we are always striving for. That's why we start businesses. It's like, I have a different point of view. Let me see if that light that I put on this hill draws enough to it. But we're seeing it in a different way in the sense that, um, to, to, to Mike's point of view, it's not necessarily science that's wrong. It's who's telling you what the science is. I mean, we literally had a person... Dr. Fauci claiming he was the stand-in for science. I've, uh, you know, say what you want about uh, vaccines and COVID and lockdown, whatever, but you, even the most diehard fan has to stop for a second and say, wait a minute, did he just say those words? Did he just say that he is science? And nobody questioned him on that. Nobody pushed back on that. Nobody said, whoa, whoa, whoa. The level of arrogance and dishonesty and the the rot within you that enabled you to utter those words. That's your shadow speaking in Jungian terms. Something is deeply corrupt with that with that person. Even if that's a talking point that somebody handed to him, 
he should have just looked down on that. Oh, I'm not saying that sentence. You need to go back and, and fix this. But he said it with conviction. He said it with deep belief. He said it with sincerity. And nobody pushed back on it. So that state of the broken world is perfectly reflected in the fact that that was allowed to be uttered, that was suggested to be uttered, that was uttered with conviction. And more importantly, nobody challenged it. And it takes a couple of guys on a podcast nobody really hears about. You know, I, I understand the facts of it. We're not famous for this, but we just like these conversations. We're the ones asking this question. Why is it that it's okay that somebody was able to claim that title for themselves? What, what you're talking about there, Ace, is the classic decentralization, centralization issue, isn't it? So, you know, if a group of, if, if you had multiple voices of dissent and, and lots of people uh, contributing uh, uh, you would have a, a number of alternative solutions. Um, obviously, the the situation that we've ended up in is 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 this, um, it, it, you know, centralization, which is the the inexorable path towards a point of failure, isn't it? So I think I think what you're describing is the, is the difference between centralization and decentralization. Um, you know, the idea that there is one path, irrespective of context, is the uh, is a vortex, isn't it? And, drags us all over the edge so so i think you you're you know what would what would a world look like it would look like a world where where we where we didn't um completely fragilize ourselves um uh, you know we stood stood on one playing card basically a single point of failure so i think i think that's there seems to be this um incredible drive or it's almost like you can't debate um, this this drive towards the, the centralizing that everything has to be ha- handled on a worldwide basis, but it, this seems to me to be a, a road to complete ruin. We're literally putting everything on red. So I think the world that you're, you know, what would the world look like that was that was the the, the opposite to this? It would be a world where we had um, uh, multiple points of failure and multiple solutions to to issues as they as they come along, and that's 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 how we survive. Uh, serial redundancy, which I, I'm not going to talk too much about because that's on the other podcast, but we, we survive with multiple points of failure. The minute you've got one single point of failure, ruins just around the corner, isn't it? Fate, fate you know, arrives in the form of Mike Tyson and punches you in the face. So I think I think that's what you're describing is that classic dichotomy. I, I don't know what you think, Paul. You know, two things. I'm going to jump back for a second to when you were talking about in, intuitive and how technology has has kind of destroyed that that part of it and the one thing i i'd like to say on that is uh you see it in the symptoms right you see people's anxiety start to go exponential um you know you see disconnects you see all these strange uh things that have never occurred in humans all of a sudden start popping up left and right right people are going everybody needs a psychologist psychiatrist they need to be on drugs and and so forth and so on. So you're definitely seeing, uh, even if people, this is the interesting thing is sometimes people can't articulate what's happening. Like we just see it in, in, um, in the effects and the symptoms that start to, to start to occur. And one of the things that we're seeing on a regular basis is, is that anxiety, uh, skyrocketing at every, at every level, both from a, from the, you know, very young age to the, to the very adult is, is this the symptoms permeating permeating through every facet of uh, one's life the other the, to the topic that you guys are discussing now 
it's the weaponization of the the expert, right? It's the it's the hey, listen, you guys sit back. Let me tell you how this game is played. I you know I'm the expert, and nothing makes me go more parabolic than when 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 people try to impose their expert uh, analysis on hey. You don't know what you're talking about. I do. I've studied this for years. And it gets back to this idea of it works in the bounded and compact spaces. These are experts in academia and politics and things of that nature. But at the end of the day, we're dealing in multiplicative, multidimensional spaces. So I'm going to keep harping on this idea that that's where the real problem is, is you're an expert up to a point, but you could be wrong. And the, the problem that I have an issue with is this gets back to the weaponization of sciences. They're imposing these ideas onto people saying, listen, you have no idea. You're you're totally ignorant. You have no idea. And you shouldn't even have a, a, a conversation. You shouldn't even have a seat at the table. And that is where the real problems start to begin is when we start believing that 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 knowledge based systems encompasses all knowledge. And the simple fact is. It doesn't. And in fact, you can make a, an argument that that uh, knowledge based analysis and knowledge based information is infinitesimal to the total knowledge of the system. And what we really know is very infinitesimal. And we go to weaponize that. And that's when problems start to really occur. And that's when we start to see fat tails. So it's just it's it's this underlying theme of the expert that they they know all it's wizard of oz stuff where hey don't pay attention to the guy behind the you know behind the screen because you know we don't all that really matters is is that is he knows how to apply this and and i think that's really what has occurred over the last three or four years is this idea of uh the expert knows all and don't question him and i just the moment that starts to happen i i just think you have a real problem I think it's it's interesting because I think you can take it even a step back and think about the way in which um, the expert attends to the world. And that 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 seems to be, um, you know, sort of explicit, instrumental, <laughs> defined, confidence, this abstract voice that becomes the only voice um, that, that, that we ever hear. Um, while. The alternative to that, I guess, is the intuitive, implicit, fluid, uh, intrinsic um, sort of maverick voice. I've, I've been trying to get get the, the term maverick out there to describe us because it makes us sound cool. Uh, that that voice is is diminished and, and irrelevant. So it seems that we've we've. If you like, we've put on a pedestal. A particular way of attending to the world that breaks things down into bits that 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 makes things um, a function of each other, and they, they can only be stood, understood in relationship to each other. So nothing's ever no, nothing's ever understood in 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 its relationship to the whole. It's only ever understood in its relationship to 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 to, to another thing, um, and and so all all the analysis that they do is is some kind of translation so it's somehow removed or separated from reality and that that is the voice that comes through the screen it is that screen that separates you from reality that separates you from your own uh, intrinsic inherent intuitive nature and i think that's that's where the 
I think that's what's kind of driving people mad is somewhere inside they 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 know a whole a whole portion of themselves has been has been nullified. It's probably what's driving you mad with the expert class. You're not allowed to listen to your own um, intuitive intuitive senses. You have to listen to this abstract, disembodied, screen-based, hugely confident, you know, um, hubristic voice, uh, uh, which is just it's everywhere. It that that way of attending to the world, that attitude is it, it, we're almost. Um, besieged by it i think i think as humans and, and I, i'll go back to it again I, I think we are a planet or, or certainly those a uh, couple of billion or between one and two billion who are connected we are a planet of traumatized people and and i agree with you paul people feel this deep sense uh, of dissatisfaction and it, and it and it comes out in all kinds of weird and crazy ways i i think that one of the reasons that we all you kind of kept a, a conversation going for, for, for years now, is that is that we treat each other with grace. That, that is a very difficult thing to find outside of, our, you know, your immediate family. And even, people even find it difficult there. What what happened to grace? Grace seems to be the thing, one of the other things that, that, that seems to be eliminated alongside, you know, so, so you know, uh, the intuitive sense of human beings everyone seems to have lost that it, it grace i guess is a harmony with the universe isn't it that would be that would my de- my definition is and what we seem to have at the moment is a is a world of disharmony um so i i agree with you i think i think yeah i think what we're both getting at here is this is this this world of traumatized people yeah and i and i and just one one thought on that is grace humbleness uh, not knowing, being comfortable with that, and the moment, and and and, and I chat about this a little bit. But one of the things that drives me absolutely bonkers is the idea of if you cannot question it, and you're not allowed to say, "Well, I don't really know about that," and I'm not really sure, or "Hey, you know, the problem hasn't emerged yet." You 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 don't you you think you know. But you have, you know, that's one of the things with nature is, you know, you the the problem may not have emerged yet, and you're manipulating something, and uh, you're you're saying, well, I've solved that problem. I'm like, yeah, but you might have created, you know, twenty five thousand other issues based off your own solution, and 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 so you're 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 making solutions of a problem that you know now, but nature's going to come along and come up with nineteen different ways of you know, how to, it's going to work around that. And, and, and that's the problem that I have with these guys is, is this idea of if you cannot question it, if I can't say, well, yeah, but I don't really, you know, that, that, that may be true, but there may be a problem that we have not yet seen yet. Uh, and, and that's the problem that I have is, is that people aren't allowed to question. And more importantly, they use their stature uh, or to to uh, impose or mandate uh, how they see the world, and I'm like, oh, so you can't be wrong. They're like, well, I, I've studied this for 25 years. I'm like, that doesn't mean that you're right. And and more importantly, nature doesn't can come along and and create a a an, a problem on top of your solution that you can't get out of. Very similar to like antibiotics, antibiotic resistance stuff, right? We're starting to see boundaries as far as that's concerned. So that's kind of the stuff that 
that I go, you know, just nuts over. It drives me insane that these guys are, I'm like, you realize when you create a solution, you may be, you may have created more problems that are, uh, that, that don't have solutions to them. And that's the part that I have, or that's the, that's the only thing I, I, you know, that, that people don't really discuss enough is, you know, they assume they have all the information there possibly is about the state space. And I'm like, well, with nature, you really don't know because, you know, it still is a, mer- it's, and I think it's back to your, your continuous discrete thing, right? This idea of it's, since it's always continuous, there's never no, there's never a stopping point. Most people think of it as a game, right? Well, I, I, I've won the game or I've got a solution and, and in, in nature, the game never stops and in, in never stopping that makes for a very difficult uh, thing to navigate and you just have to be careful of your solutions. But the bigger point is if you can't question it, that's the real alarm bell. You can't question religion. You can't question science. You can't question the expert. I'm like that, that to me is that's the red flag. I think, I think to us, um, what we don't know is far more important than what we do know. There's a great, there's a great line from, you know, I always like to do a Merwin quote. There was a, there was, a, there's a great line from Merwin where he says, I have with me all that I do not know. I have lost none of it. And I think that that kind of summarizes, we, we are always um, afraid of what we are missing. We're always afraid of what we don't know. It probably takes us all the way back to Ace's question of why I was, um, suspicious in in March, maybe even February 20, April 20, um, because always suspicious of what we don't know, always always worried about what we don't know, always worried about the unknown. And I think that that's lost. I can't think of a of a political leader in the world who is who is concerned about what they don't know. That seems to be lost. And. And on to- and with that in mind, there's no money in announcing you don't know. And this gets back to the state spade optimization of all the money is in uh, telling other people what to do and how to do it. So that is in, although the most people don't discuss this is that's the problem with state 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 space optimization or payoff spaces. Most people are are, mon- are trying to monetize uh, certificates or expert nature. There's no money in saying, well, I don't really know. People don't want to hear that. They want to hear, well, what's the answer? And the simple fact is that puts us into a uh, Kobayashi, right? It's a non-winnable situ- situ- situation where you, you cannot um, – because you're trying to optimize the state space, which is some monetary payoff space – that puts you at a disadvantage because there are times where you should just say, you know what, we really don't know. The, you know, through COVID, it should have been more along the lines of, hey, listen, we're not really sure how this is going to go about, but this is kind of the best thing that we think. But they don't want to do that. They want people to feel like that the, there's a hundred percent They have a hundred percent confidence level of exactly what to do, and they never came across like that. And they weaponize science, they weaponize the expert, and you know, they weaponize the monetary payoff space. Uh, and I just, I just have a, you know, always have a real issue with that is this weaponization of these payoff spaces and people and, and, and being more comfortable with being humble about not knowing. So the next question is going to be what's worse fragility or the hope sold on that fragility to the masses. 
Well, I think uh, that the, the the larger the centralization, which is, is essentially um, the, the more people that believe the fragility, if you like, the worse it gets. So that the, I guess the whole point of having multiple points of failure is that it is is that you know in and of itself a, a a fragile situation or a fragile thing isn't bad can actually be quite good so i wouldn't say that 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 a a situation or a or or or, or a thing characterized by fragility in and of itself is isn't a bad thing you actually want to go through quite a lot of uh, non-terminal fragile events until you find the thing that works so i think it it really is the more um, people that buy the fragile solution, the worse it gets. That would be my answer, Paul. You know, I I think with fr- how I kind of think about fragility and and fat tails and, and and systemic issues is most of those things occur from the optimization of some benefit, you know, optimization of some payoff space, and that's where the real fragility begins. So most people don't think in terms of oh that's fragile. They think in terms of Oh, well, that's good. Like, like getting an education. You know, most people don't realize at some point you're going to reach some type of upper limit where everybody's educated and there is no great return on that investment, but the costs keep going up. And so then you, you run into these bailouts and so forth and so on. So fragility doesn't in especially in, in fragility from man-made man-made perspective actually comes from the optimization of benefits. And that's where the fragility comes. So when people talk, talk in terms of fragility, what they're really what, or the way I look at it is it's, it's never really sold as fragility. It's, it's sold as a benefit. And we only see the fragility somewhere down the road. So at the end of the day, it's like when I think about those things, I don't think in terms of, oh, people are aware of the risk associated with this. What what ends up normally happening is what or to me, what ends up happening is that they optimize some benefit to a point of some upper limit or lower limit or boundary or whatever. And that's where the fragility begins. So. I think the to your question, I think the idea is. Be careful of people that promote optimization of some benefit as the only solution and only path, because at some point you're going to be bounded. Um, and that boundary is where the fragility begins. And, and to me, that's the, the bigger issue is that, that society is always optimizing, uh, some benefit. Corporations, science, uh, academia, they're all optimizing something for some type of compensation factor. And in turn, in, in, in doing that, they're, they're, they're creating fragility, even if you don't see it. Why? Because they're optimizing the monetary payoff space or some type of payoff space and in and in optimizing that payoff space for a benefit they're they're fragilizing the system so that's uh, to your point that that's kind of how i look at it is the fragility is is emerges from the optimization of benefits yeah and to to rip, to riff off on the points that you guys just made uh, i like to think about nature in the sense that okay uh, you have really beautiful antlers, the females are attracted. The bigger your antlers are, the harder it is for you to turn corners, which means the easier you are as a prey. So there's a balance and payoff space there. But what, to Paul's point of view, if you think about the education system, it's been weaponized and everybody's told you must get a degree. Now, there's a, there's a very important and dis, uh, distinct component that's always mis- misunderstood, which is that 
you shouldn't uh, look at life and make profit your only motive, but you should make profit a constraint of your decision-making processes. You want to go for impact first, and you want to constrain yourself to profit so that your losses don't become something that bleeds out to the rest of society. So I'll give you an example. Everybody's told, oh, go get a degree. Okay, so you get in a loan, you get a degree, now you work at Starbucks. Now, you're miserable working at Starbucks because nobody appreciates your degree in English literature or whatever nonsensical degree you got yourself entangled with. And that same job would have been actually less stressful and less annoying if you had just gotten that job to start with. You would have been out of debt. You probably could have learned a thing or two about how to run a coffee shop. And eventually, with a little bit of time and savings, you probably could have opened your own coffee shop to serve a different need. And the problem we're seeing here um, is this idea that we're narrowing choice. And so it's the same concept of dissenting voices are not there. Everybody must become a lawyer, a doctor, or engineer, or an entrepreneur. It doesn't work like that. What you want to do is you want to say, serve humanity. So that's your impact point. Constrain that by profit. And what we mean by that is profit has to be not just monetarily, but your time, effort, energy, and your actual general happiness. If you hate your job, it's not profitable. Eventually, it'll, it'll catch up to you. But if you're a plumber and you have to, you get to make your own schedule, your work results are immediately visible to you and you don't have a boss. You could come home whenever you want. You don't have to take the, the weekend shift. That's actually a much more palatable life than somebody with $400,000 in debt working at a coffee shop, feeling like they're too good to work at that coffee shop, having a level of condescension toward not only their their, their fellow employees, but also to the staff, uh, to the uh, customers of that business. So this whole fragilization concept is this idea that the only answer to the world is X. And somehow over the past 30 or 40 years, that answer has been, go get a degree. Why? What's the benefit of that degree for me? I don't need the degree. Maybe not everybody should get a degree. In fact, now we're starting to see that degrees aren't worth the paper they're printed on. And so now you have to think about the second order effects of what happens to a world where everybody wakes up to that idea. So the next generation that's decides that we're not going to buy in, and the previous generation that bought in are now buried in debt, there's going to be conflict there as well. There's going to be resentment. They're going to say, how come he didn't go? How come I went? Why am I in debt and he's not? Why am I serving him coffee? And he doesn't, if you think about the scenario, the kid at 18 who decided not to go and spends a year just, even if he just spends a year being a, a complete uh, free spirit walking around doing nothing, nothing productive of value. He's still better off than that guy, $300,000 in debt because he lived on campus serving him that coffee. That level of resentment is going to start to build up and it's going to show up in pockets all over society. You're starting to see it now. There's this resentment toward people who didn't take the vaccine from the people who did take the vaccine. It's kind of like, you know, remember, we're, we're talking about that game of, of information loss, but there's another layer to this, which is monkey in the middle, right? Everybody's in the, uh, playing a game. You got the media, you got academia, you got big tech, you got the government, they're kind of throwing this ball around and people are just, oh, I need to lock down. Okay, they run over to the lockdown corner and it didn't work. Oh, I need to wear a mask. Oh, that didn't work. Oh, I need to get a vaccine. Oh, that didn't work. Oh, I need to get a second vaccine. Oh, that didn't work either. So it's like you're, you're just a little monkey just walking around. And, and fairness to the rest of us, we're all just apes, right? At the end of the day, I'm an ape hosting a podcast. You guys are apes just trying to have a conversation. So we can give everybody that leniency, but... On the other side of the equation, we have to look at what's happening here on the greater scale of things. Is there a hide the ball going on? Is there information loss happening? Is there a monkey in the middle game that's being played? And more importantly, 
the people who are playing that game are having fun, but they don't realize that life isn't just for their lifespan. And what happens to their kids' generation when they inherit a world so broken because all those adults that were supposed to be in charge completely dropped the ball. They broke all the trust. They broke thousands of years of familial ties because, like Mike said, you have a TikTok screen. So I'll pass that back over to Mike and uh, get his thoughts on it, and then we'll go to Paul. Well, I think, I don't think it's, I, I agree with about 99% uh, of what you said there, but I, what I do wonder whether whether we can be a little bit sort of negative in assuming that we are it is going to end in that sort of uh, desolate future. Um, you know, we have the universe that we live in tends towards beauty and complexity and order. Um, and without getting religious, uh, trying not to be religious, we can shrug our shoulders and say that that just that just happens at random but i i'm not so sure um i i i like to think of the way the way things happen i call it the pull so it's quite a hard thing to explain but i i i think that we are the 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 way the way things progress it's not they're not pushed blindly forward by a mechanism from behind um blind processes you know can't see the future um, and I think it's better to, to think of the way things happen as they are attracted towards certain goals or certain um, possibilities. So I, I, I sometimes when you look back about when things have turned out really well, the route that you got there, uh, if you'd have taken the, the a, a discrete photograph or a discrete, discrete five minute interview uh, uh, interval along that way, it, it could quite often look very dark but when you look back over your life uh, I certainly feel that things have a funny way of working out and that and that's this midpoint if you like between the possible and and, and reality call it potential if you like I, I call it the pull so I, I I actually although things look quite bleak um, currently I actually think that the universe isn't isn't sort of fa- it doesn't favor um, this this it works against if you like this this centralized top-down systemization and i think that it's it's i think it's less likely that we're we're going to end up in this i think we're at we're at a in terms of volatility we're at we're at we're at we're at a bad moment but it doesn't necessarily follow that that's the way things will end so i think i think i have a little bit more optimism perhaps i think we've probably we've probably talked about all of the things that that you know that are wrong if you like or that that drive us crazy or that, that that we're looking at but if you look at the way nature unfolds around us it has this tendency towards high levels of awareness it has this tendency towards beauty it's, and this this evolves over the trajectory of time so i think i'm, I'm actually more optimistic than this conversation would probably would probably indicate uh in in a more general sense um i don't think we can fight that teleological arrow of the universe or i don't think they the billionaire class whoever they are they're 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 fighting an impenetrable future you know and the inevitability of the new and we're not fighting that so i actually think we're in a better position even though we're we're we're, we're, we're we look like we're behind at the moment that would be my initial response i thought i would inject some optimism 
No, no, and you're you're spot on. I mean, I think one of the things that uh, I I talk to my kids, and I'm I try not to help them too much with their problems, and let them, as I like to say, you'll figure it out. And I think we'll figure it out. And I also think that some of the things that we're seeing are very pendulum like. You know, they swing from one side to another, back and forth. And so you see these pockets. And if you take a snapshot of it, you're like, oh, geez, this looks like it's a dire situation. No, I'm in complete agreement with you on this, Michael. And I think that we're all kind of optimistic, you know, because if we weren't, we would shut the we would we would go into a room, shut the door and never come out. I, I think that we're all of the belief or hopefully we're of the belief that that things will work or figure the figure their way out. I, I just think that one of the things that I get concerned with is this linearization of thinking and, you know, per, that's pressed upon, uh, especially the young kids, right, through academia, get good grades and get a good job, so, so forth and so on. That's the part that I, that's, a, that's the one thing that kind of, for lack of a better term, drives me bonkers is, is that kids are designed or forced to think a particular way and this is the only way i would think and and so if anything comes out of this i hopefully it's a widening of perspectives of allowing people to pursue things that they're they're necessary that they're interested in and not necessarily only one form of way of thinking and i think that's the that's the kind of reoccurring theme is that we feel like the world's kind of closing in on us because we've been we've been optimized to a particular path right? Education, get a good education, get good grades. So you get a good job so you can buy a big house or have a nice house and so forth and so on. And I just think that what we're, what we're all kind of hinting at is there are other options other than the same path or the same optimized path that everybody else is kind of, or modernity is purporting people to, to pursue. And I, and I think that in, in, in doing that, I think, uh, a form of optimism comes out of that. I, I guess the the optimism emerges from the 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 volatility that eventually gets created from everybody following the same path. And they're like, wait a second, you guys told me that this was the best way to go, and it doesn't feel like it's the best way. And you get enough of those folks that feel that way, and they'll find they'll they'll forge their own path. And that is a good thing, I think. I 100% agree. And uh, to to Bring it back to Mike's point about the optimization or the optimism of looking at the universe through the lens of beauty. Uh, I attest to that on the following grounds. Um, we can leave religion and God aside, uh, but it's it's clearly visible with just two modern recent examples. So first example I'll give is just Steve Jobs, right? There's just one guy who showed up to a company that was about 90 days from bankruptcy and turned it around into the most profitable company that's ever existed. Now, are the engineers who work at Apple different and better than the engineers that work at Microsoft? I don't really think so. But there's something of a guiding force within what Steve saw, where he put an elevated beauty above everything else, and that gives a different kind of pull and a direction to the company. But to bring it to a second point, let's take a look at another example. I'm an NFL owner. Paul's an NFL owner. And Mike's an NFL owner. And Tom Brady's on the market. I would give my right hand to have that man show up. Even if we don't make the playoffs, I don't care about the playoffs. I want that mindset of that guy imprinted and embossed onto my stadium 
into my janitor's mindset, into the guy who mows the lawn and everybody else around it. Yet, when that man was available, only two teams showed interest. And I think what happened there was a bunch of people ran the numbers, did the data analysis and said, yeah, he's probably past this problem. He's not worth it. But the one team that took the risk not only got rewarded handsomely because they won the Super Bowl, but more importantly, they every single person associated with that organization during the tenure of Tom's that he's been there acquired a, a mindset of what a winner looks like. And the fact that somebody can so easily miss that, because you look at Tom, the last thing that comes to your mind is athlete. He's not an athlete. He doesn't look like an athlete. He doesn't fit the bill. He doesn't have six pack. He's not, you know, he's not running faster than uh, most of the people there, but it's not about that. There's something else that he brings to the table that speaks to the quality of truth and beauty. And I think that in a world governed by data, peer review, and, oh, I just need, uh, you know, the analysis to be correct on this, sabermetrics for baseball, whatever the case may be, the fact that the entire NFL let that guy slide. I would take Tom Brady on his last year where he was injured and he couldn't play, but he just wanted to be around the team. I'd still take him just because I know that I'm like, whatever he teaches us, whatever he brings to that table, we can work off of that because clearly he knows something the rest of us don't know. This man single-handedly has more Super Bowl wins than entire franchises do. And and I, and I noticed the third thread, and I'll pass the, the floor back to you guys, is I was listening to one of the greatest UFC fighters in, in history, Habib Nurmagomedov, and he was just telling people, he's like, here's my secret. He said, when I put you on the ground, uh, the Brazilian jiu-jitsu guys, they're all trying to, to grab you in positions with their arms or whatever. What I do is I squeeze you with my thighs. And... You're like, okay, what benefit is that? Well, they talked to his heavyweight training partner, and he said, when, when Habib is on top of you, it feels like there's a heavyweight on you. Because when he's squeezing you with his thighs, you're gasping for air. And you notice this if you watch the fight with him and Conor McGregor. As soon as he mounts Conor, Conor's face looks like he's drowning. And it's not because Habib is grabbing him at his arms or anything, but, but he's squeezing with his inner thighs so hard around Conor's ribs that Conor can't breathe. And... If you put somebody, anybody in the world, no matter how top class they are, the minute they can't breathe, all their accomplishments, all their capabilities goes right out the window. And now they're in a state of panic and you could take advantage of it. And so the guy went 29 and 0 for a reason. There are people who are specially built and they come from a different breed. And they're a reflection, in my opinion, of that source of truth that religion tries to build a church around. And these people do exist. And yeah, you could say, yeah, you know, the odds of like you can walk into any junkyard tomorrow and you would have enough parts there to build a Ferrari because it's just matter. Right. However, we both know we all know in reality, there's no way you're going to walk into that junkyard and watch a tornado self-assemble a, a beautiful Ferrari. That that element of what creates that beauty, which is what Mike was was, uh, was hinting at, is constantly missing in our world. And there's this I, I, I noticed this weird trend where. We idolize people in the past, but we never really worship the work that's being put in in the present moment. There's nobody that we look forward to today. Where everybody, well, that's not Einstein. Einstein was, you know, he's a giant in the intellect. Yeah, but there's more people doing science now. I'm sure there's somebody as capable working today. But our entire cultural point of view has been such to diminish the current work and to only revel in the past. And the answer to that, the antidote to that, is what Mike is always talking about. It's the entrepreneur. The entrepreneur is the person who sees that, hey, you know what? I'm going to go try to make something out of this. Maybe it'll work. And if it does, maybe it'll be brilliant. 
And if it's not brilliant, at least it'll give me enough room to be my own boss. So the optimism is built in, but we can still see evidence of the fact that 30 teams passed on Tom Brady. So I'll pass it back over to Mike and get his thoughts on that. Well, I think that you're looking at the, or the team that didn't pass or the, uh, the, the, the examples that you've given are, are where people rather, rather you know, we go all the way back to the beginning. So rather than using a, uh, a list of tick boxes to assess or analyze something, they're, they're trying to look at things contextually. So I think that's, you know, trying to look at things in terms of the whole rather than the individual constituent parts. You know, th- things are precisely of themselves and not another thing. Um, no two blades of grass are the same. So that the idea perhaps that we could, that we can um, scientifically analyze Tom Brady is, it, it's, 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 it's crazy. But there is another way of attending to the Tom Brady problem, isn't there? And that, that's to contextualize um, Tom Brady in in your particular environment, which which is what which is what you're doing there, and it, it's it's again this this distinction between analysis and intuition. In, intuition allows you to um, process is far more information if you think about it. Um, it allows you to process the great sea of uncertainty, whereas uh, the the analytic view of Tom Brady only measures how fast he can run. Or how you know how his statistical performance has declined into his advancing years. It doesn't um, understand the effect that Tom Brady has on the whole. So it only looks at the effect that uh, the, the 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 facets of Tom Brady. So I think it's a really good microcosm of of what we've been talking about on this call. I'll hand over to Paul here because I I know nothing at all about American football, and, and Paul knows everything about American football, so I'm going to pass that. No, neither do I. One thing uh, that I, I want to kind of jump over to is is religion and science, and that is this. I think a lot of times we look at them and we're like, well, one doesn't fit in the other, or the other one doesn't fit in, in one. You, you, religion can't, you can't prove any, you can't prove that you know, God exists or, or science, or you can't use science, uh, in, in, in religion context. And I, I, I have finally realized for me, the way I look at them is they can be mutually exclusive, meaning like they're both tools for, for different, uh, operations. Science can be used in evidence-based analysis and, um, religion can be used for the unknowing or getting comfortable with uh, unknowing. And so in, in, in using religion with science, you can say, OK, now I can get comfortable with not knowing a particular outcome. Uh, it just and I, and I guess what I'm trying to get it is that they can be used simultaneously. Uh, but you don't need to. One doesn't have to necessarily prove the other. And you don't you can you can they can literally be two separate tools. Um, so I, I've always, I've always had a struggle with that as far as, you know, can you, you know, can you prove God exists? And the answer is maybe, maybe the the great thing about religion is you don't have to, you know, why do we have to kind of go down that road? So that's, I've always 
I've been thinking about that one lately, and it, it, you mentioned religion, and that 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 kind of that kind of popped up. The other thing is, I think a great example of all this or the, the this conversation that we're having is how you arrive at particular decisions. And what I think what we can all see is we may have different words and different perspectives on, but we all kind of go down a very similar path, not the exact same path because we all have had different experiences with going down these different paths that we have. Um, it, it brings a different perspective. And, and, and I just have found it very interesting that, that we can all look at some different situation and draw our own conclusions, but they're all very similar, you know, you know whether or not it be optimistic or science or, or conspiracies or uh, how to look at the world in, in relationship to one thing or another. And, and as far as sports are concerned, it's always the, the, the simple the, to me when it comes to sports is I look at it a lot differently than I used to. I used to be very, I was very, a, a very structured, uh, linear thinker in the, in the form of how do I optimize some particular state space? As I've gotten older, I've gotten away from that. So I don't have a very dogmatic, uh, perspective that I once have both whether or not it be trading or sports. And, and one thing I've realized with sports is the simple fact is a lot of times what makes somebody really successful are the intangibles, the things that aren't, it's, 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 all of the characteristics combined make that person special and their particular path makes them uber that makes them extra special. And I just think a guy like Tom Brady, he just has intangibles, you know, is it, does he make people feel more comfortable? Uh, and the answer is, I don't know what it is. I just know that he seems to win a lot, just like, uh, Steph, Stephen Curry, you know, he seems to win a lot where the, whoever comes around in his orbit and, and so w when I start to look at those things, I don't try to break them down. I just accept them as, hey, you know what? That guy's got a gift. I don't know what the gift is, but it's something special. And it probably isn't something I can measure. And I think this gets back to the idea of be careful what you can measure. Because at the end of the day, you may optimize something that you think is a is correlated to what you're measuring. And in reality, it may be a combination of all those characteristics along with the things that you cannot measure that makes that person special. And I, and I just, I, I don't think that's appreciated enough, especially in sports, because at the end of the day, it's, we all want to look smart and feel smart. And so if, if we're like, well, I've got all the statistics that tell you that this should be true. And then you, you take that player and you put them on another team. And you're like, geez, that didn't work out. And the answer is because it, it goes back to this idea of it's about the multiplicative multidimensional interactions that create a particular environment that makes that person special in that domain. And then if you move him over into something else, he's not that same person anymore because of the interactions. And so that's how I look at sports now versus I used to be very, like I said, dogmatic and analytical about, well, that guy's got this, this, and this. Now I'm like, well, you know, especially at the Uber levels, you know, the, those guys that play at those elite levels, I don't know what it is. I just know that they just seem to have something special that is somewhat not reproducible. And that's how I look at that stuff. No, and to, to, to build up on um, Paul's point of view, uh, <clears throat> one of the things you notice if you watch some of the films that they made about Tom is not only does his team believe that they can still win, the other team is definitely afraid that they're facing Tom 
And so it's, it's kind of like this interesting compounding effect of it is it, you have this positive influence on your team that, we, well, we still have Tom and he could pull it off in the last minute. So that level of confidence to show up and make the plays is still there, even if you're you know, playing for a position of, of, of you know, deficit in terms of points that you need to score. But the other team is scared. And that's interesting, right? Because if you really think about that, these are grown men, these are professionals, these are elite level people, and yet they're afraid. And the same thing happens if you watch Habib, right? He's in a fight. Those guys are all, everybody's tough in that sport. Nobody's weak. Nobody's soft. Yet, they get in the ring with the guy after one round. And, and, and every single one of them, they interview them after. They go, we know what he wants to do. He wants to grab you, wants to push you against the fence, and then he wants to drag you. And I've trained for that. Yet, they don't know what it feels like until somebody at that elite level does it. So it's, it's almost like that whole saying is, yeah, I can meet a guy who does, you know, kickboxing. Yeah, but you've never met the person who's the most elite at kickboxing. So you can't train for that guy. And so, in essence, if you look at a person um, like 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 Steve Jobs, to bring it back to him, is what he always said was intuition and beauty and art leads the way. Data informs that, that we're going in the right direction. It doesn't tell us a direction to start with. It just affirms and validates it and make adjustments for it. And the other companies do the exact opposite. They will A-B test and data drive everything to the point where they've missed the biggest uh, plays that are out there. For example, Microsoft missed social. They missed mobile. They missed all those opportunities because their data told them that what they were currently doing was beautiful and correct. And in a way, you can't really blame them because, you know, if you're making that much money, you're not really hungry and you're, you're okay if the next meal isn't necessarily big for you because you've already been stuffed with billions in your pocket. So it leads in that particular direction of general complacency. But the idea of it all comes back to what happens with uncertainty. And our initial conversation that we started tonight with was simply this. You look at the future. You don't know what's waiting for you. And you're faced with a decision. And you're looking at a type two type error, which is, am I doing this so that I can be correct? Or am I doing this so I can minimize my harm? And the concept of profit attached to that would be as follows. Don't look at the short-term profit and ignore the long-term pain. But similarly, don't just look at the long-term profit and completely fall in the hole for the short-term uh, work that you're going to have to put in to get that goal to meet. And it's that balancing act. And that's what Mike brings to the table from a business point of view. He looks at that and he says, okay, there's uncertainty. Here's a type two type error that I have to deal with. And here are my constraints. But he's constantly informed by his love of poetry and his reading of English literature. And that's what people can't grasp. I think there's a couple of other things that that we sh we do uh, generally, as well as as well as sort of minimizing harm. Um, so I, th I don't think we should be too. I think we I mean, I, I think it's something uh, that, that obviously the type to error is something that we do need to be focused on. But I do think there are other things that um, that, that you can do, that we can do, um, that give us give us more chance of success. I mean, I think for being too defensive, um, I think I think that 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 that's difficult. You tend to find the people who take um, slightly greater risks, but with flexibility, um, tend to be tend to be the winners in the end. So I think I think you know I've I've, I've kind of left this bit out a lot 
when when I've spoken about it before, because you don't want to lead people down uh, a path, a high risk path, and then they and then they they head to ruin. But the reality is, at some point, you kind of have to take the risk. And the people who do take those risks um, tend to be tend to be more successful in the end. And I think that those risks need to, need to be informed by other things. So one of the best ways to take a risk is to take it when you're young. So it's not a good idea to wait around too long to start a business. I think that you're you, you've got a long way. You've got a lot of time to come back if you if you take if you take a risk on something and it fails you've got plenty of time if you take that risk when you're young to do it again yeah i think there does need to be a, a, an element of risk so so while while you do minimize harm i think if you're in your 20s your 30s you can take some bigger risks because you can come back and you can do it again and it tends to be you know the species that sort of sacrifices uh, defense for for you know a bit more flexibility and a bit more movement it tends to be the one the one that wins in terms of evolution and i think i think that's that's similar you want to be flexible you want to be able to move and you've got to be prepared to take some risks so but just take them when you're 25 and not when you're 55 hard to come back when you're 55 so i'd say i'd, I'd add that into the into the mix and i kind of deliberately left that out we've spoken before and other things that i've spoken about a lot of people have picked up on the first half of it and not picked up on the second half of it. It'd be quite interesting to see if people start to pick up on that after after this podcast goes out. And, and the other thing I would say is that, you know, life is, you, know, you mentioned music, a life is a dance, you know, it's a celebration. It's got, it's like a gift. Um, and it's not a mechanism that, that we can, or a problem, a mechanism to be exploited, or a problem to be solved. You know, it's it's something else entirely. And I think we can sometimes, e- even when we speak, you know, we can sometimes start to develop these almost, uh, you know, we, we become kind of rule, rules based. Whereas the the, the reality is, it, it's it, life is something very different. And and I I think one of the things that I do try to do is try not to separate business from life and try and make it all the same thing. So my my final thoughts on kind of you know the the, the things that we've ch- chatted towards in spinning off of what Michael was talking about how I look at how I my my particular perspective is hey just follow what you if something if if you have a if you're a risk adverse person you're not going to be a risky person and so one of the things I realized with trading was I had to trade the way I emotionally felt my emotional alignment was to be not super aggressive. I was more of a counter trend trader than I was a trend trader. So that was more, that's how I was more aligned to. And as much as I might try to be a particular way, I'm not going to be that person. So I have always found it's pretty difficult to say, well, this is how you should probably do things to optimize that particular state space. I guess what I would, hint at people or try to encourage people is hey just find whatever drives you whatever kind of flicks your switch whatever points you in a particular direction and you feel emotionally motivated to do it go do it you know and yeah and you're going to make mistakes and you're going to be errors and you're you know and and you're gonna you know you're gonna have swings and misses and strikes out and so forth and so on but if you are emotionally aligned to it then go pursue it 
And as far as the risk is concerned, you're never going to be able to optimize, uh, you know, out the or you're never going to be able to reduce it to zero. Uh, so just if if, you know, whether or not it be a relationship or uh, a business pursuit or or anything is, you know, kind of go after what emotionally drives you go down the rabbit holes that you feel comfortable in going down. Uh, and that also kind of aligns to how you're. I'm more of a random thinker. I'm all over the place. So it's very hard for me to have conversations now because I jump around so much. My mind is always like I'm over here, over there. I can't remember what I just said 30 seconds ago. And and so for me to have conversations now, now that I've been away from being in a structured environment like a work environment or sports environment, is very difficult because I can't keep my train of thought. I've tra- I have almost become unbounded in the way that I think it's almost like a Brownian emotion thinking perspective. So that's, the, that's the, the first half of it. The second half is I think with COVID you, you saw a great example of relationships really getting whacked, you know, destroyed. So the things you thought were true, weren't true, or you're like, man, I really misguided that. And, and all I can ever say about those things is very similar to uh, having a group is, you know, allow the, the hard part is allowing people to go down a particular path that you don't necessarily agree with and being able to allow them to go down that path, even if you don't are, are not aligned to it. And I always say it's harder than you think it is, but it really is hard because you're like, geez, that's that's a real big mistake you're making. But I have found if you can find groups that allow you to free think and and, and be able to disagree with them but still allow them to share their perspective is a very awesome, you know, encouraged, encouraging environment you want to create. So if you can figure out ways to share your thoughts in an environment where you can have diverse perspectives, because, you know, just by us three, us four all kind of bouncing ideas around, uh, we can clearly see that everybody has different perspectives and, And even if we don't agree upon, hey, you know, I don't necessarily agree with that perspective or this perspective. I think this idea of having an environment to let those ideas emerge is incredibly useful. And and that's those are my two prevailing thoughts that I kind of want to close in on is, number one, just go pursue what you're interested in. You know, yes, there's going to be risk. Yeah, you're probably going to make mistakes, but, you know, still go down it. And the other thing is to. Figure out groups that will allow you to share your perspective and voice your opinions. And that system has to be allowed to disagree and still move forward. And I, and I think those two things are the two final thoughts that I have. Perfect. Thank you so much, gentlemen. I'm just going to give the last question here to M, and uh, we'll get your thoughts on her wrapped up final question, which is going to put a nice bow on top of this box. <laughs> All right, so I think the closest you can get to a lie is absolute truth. What I mean by this is follows. Like evolution in nature, I think truth moves similarly. Um, it always be space to evolve, to expand, or to grow. You can go as close to the truth as possible, but you cannot touch it, absolutely. Similar to the painting by Michelangelo where he depicts Adam reaching for God. Adam's hand doesn't touch God's hand. There's a little space left between them, I think purposefully. I feel like absolute truth stops the seed of evolution. Um, Recently, we've seen, especially in politics, leaders speak with absolute truth as their backbone. What do you think the impacts of this will be? 
Mr. Driver? I'm uh, thinking, would you mind answering? No, <laughs> no. So here, here's, I, I, I think that we're, I, I think we're running into the situation once again, where we, we define something and then we try to fit into that definition. And, and I think truth is one of those things like love is if there's an abstract component to it that makes it very hard to get your arms around. And so instead of, you know, because at the end of the day, you're never really going to know what the truth is. Is is it because somebody tells you what's true? Well, even if it's true, are they withholding information that you may or may not know about? And so and then how does that emerge over time? So I, I think that you have to be. And, and again, this is my interpretation. I, I re- realize that there are some religious components where people are like, hey, they believe that this is absolute truth. And, and you know what? I think they should believe that if that's how they want to define it. How I view it is I am more cautious about being I am very cautious about things being true, absolute, um, bounded by a definition and, 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 and just say, you know what, I, I am now more on the side of, you know, it's better if I just don't know and look at the world more in terms of not in, in terms of either absolute or truth, but just accepting, you know what, I probably don't even know. Even the stuff that I do know that I have evidence of or facts or details on, you know what? In 30 seconds, those things all might be the complete opposite, you know, and 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 you kind of see this in price where you're like, oh, this thing will never go down. And the next day, you know, a stock will go down 50 percent. And you're like, wait, what happened? And, and, and what you thought was true wasn't true. So I think we run into a problem where we get hamstrung on trying to fit into what we believe to be true. And just instead of saying, hey, I just don't really know. So instead of trying to force myself into a definition of truth, I'm just going to be more comfortable with saying, you know what? I don't really know what true is. I don't really know what love is. It it, it has different meanings at different times. What I thought was true, 25, I, I use this term all the time. How I saw the world 25 years ago isn't how I see the world now. Now, was it true then? Well, yeah, that's how I interpreted the world. Is it true today, even though I'm I look at the world differently? Well, yeah, that's the truth that I know. So I, I, I am more cautious of thinking in terms of absolutes, in terms of and I think this gets back to the continuous uh, discrete point that Michael made at the beginning of this conversation, which is I'm more of the idea of the continuous allows us to never really know what is true and what is not true. But in but in but 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 a, a more religious component would be allowing us to be comfortable with not knowing, and that's that's how I that's how I interpret truth and 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 definitions and and boundedness and stuff like that. Okay, um, I think that uh, well everything holds, <laughs> um, but I I think that what what whatever truth is. Uh, you know I'm going to do the Keats thing because I did recently. Truth is beauty, but what what whatever it is, is it's it's constantly changing, it's constantly unfolding, it's constant. It's so it it it's it, it's not something that you, you you know it's it's almost impossible to um, hold on to it. It's a bit like trying to hold on to the present. Um, the present's always dissolving away from us, isn't it? In, in a sense. It, it all, the present doesn't exist in time. 
Um, I guess I believe that the the beginning of the universe is there in every moment of the present. And that means that the, 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 the world of possibility still is still as big as the, the moments of the beginning of time. And that was that was suggest to me that um, I don't know anything at all. So I don't really need to worry too much about what what's true. But uh, and, and uh, I especially need to be concerned with what's beautiful and what's, uh, you know, with, with with love and 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 the things that that make us human. So I don't think I need to be too concerned with truth. Truth is 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 not it's something that di- it dissolves in, in every moment into something else that, that emerges in every moment and unfolds in every moment. So I don't I don't particularly worry too much about it. Uh, that would be my contribution on top of what Paul said. Perfect. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Appreciate your time. Amber Ace, Mr. Driver, Michael, thank you. Uh, I really appreciate everybody's time. Uh, thank you for letting me pontificate endlessly. Thank you very much. You're Everyone right. have a wonderful day. We hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we have. The truth is, any conversation worthy of having will inherently be a risky one. Thank you for listening. Stay anti-fragile and carry on the ancient tradition and your own unique way of saying what only you can say and doing what only you can do. Abiding by Milton's words, this is Ember Sadat and Ace Deliri signing off, wishing you the very best of worthy and risky conversations.